Okay, it's working. Okay, good morning, everyone. As far as anyone is concerned, listening to the sermon, this is normal. Nothing has just happened, and we're just going to continue on with our service. Now, this morning, I'm actually going to focus on our text from Second Peter. Um, this is a great Advent text um, for us to go through. Now, before I do that, last week, um, Drew... For those of you that know Drew, he has two young daughters and then a youngest boy. And they came up to me and they're like, "Uh, Pastor Ryan, we have a question for you. I was like, hit me. Um, And they said, we read the St. Nicholas story this week. And we want to know, is it the same St. Nicholas that is Santa Claus and brings us presents today? And then I look down at them and they have these big doe eyes. And they're looking at me, and I'm looking at them, and I'm looking at Drew. And I'm like, Drew, are you asking me whether or not Santa is real? And do you want me to tell your kids right now? I thought it was like the biggest cop-out ever to make me be the one to do that. Um, So my answer to him was, um, it's the the spirit of St. Nicholas that's at work today. That was my very you know, thread the needle answer to that question. Be like, you can break the news to them whenever you're ready for that. But that's not my job. Um, But as we prepare for Christmas, it's helpful to understand what the purpose of Advent is. Because our culture very much just says, let's extend Christmas to cover all of Advent. It feels like the celebration has already started and everyone's kind of opulence is running. You know, buying, purchasing, parties, etc. is all happening through this season of Advent. And so by the time we hit Christmas and New Year's, we're kind of just worn out celebrating. Whereas the Christian year is meant to be 22 to 28 days before Christmas, We're slowing things down, quieting things down, preparing our hearts for the celebration. And then we have a sustained 12 days of partying. That's the Christian way. Did you know that? So 12 days of partying, you know, it takes some planning and some energy. But if you're worn out before you even get there, it's like, okay, let's just get back to normal life on December 27th. Right? So we're trying to cultivate, we're trying to educate within our community how to celebrate these things and how to do them well. Okay, so what that means for us, though, is to try and find the themes of what we're meant to be leaning into in this season. If we're not ready to party yet, what exactly are we doing in Advent? And so what we see in this text today is going to be one of those themes. And it's, it's a theme. I didn't warn you that I'm preaching this text in a while. Do you have it up there? Oh, it's right behind me. Thank you. Okay, so one of the big themes of Advent is waiting. And waiting is hard. Who likes waiting? Nobody likes waiting. And nobody likes waiting even more when you're waiting for God's intervention. When things are hard and bad and you're waiting for something to come and fix them, to make them better. Uh, Right now, 
Roslyn is in the process of waiting for heart surgery. And so you know this surgery is going to be the thing that fixes, but that waiting is hard in the meantime. And so this is essentially what the purpose of Advent is, is to intentionally choose to wait. But waiting can be confusing. Waiting can be discouraging. Waiting can even be exhausting. Because your mind is thinking through every possible path and potential outcome of what could be ahead. And yet, waiting is a fundamental of the way of Jesus. You could even say that the whole of the Old Testament is about waiting. From the very first chapters of Genesis to the last verses of Malachi, God is promising to send a Messiah, a solution to the human condition, and to bring an end to evil in the world. But it's always waiting, and generations come and go. And a new generation comes and receives the promise and holds it, and then they go without seeing the promise actualized. And so for generation after generation after generation, you know, approximately 4,000 years of the Old Testament, we see waiting. And it's this process of just passing on the promise, hoping the next generation gets to see the fulfillment. Is our generation built for something like that? <laughs> no. Like that, the concept of that is so foreign to us. Because everything we've been taught is whatever we need, we should be able to get our hands on now and have it for ourselves. So this idea of like a, gener a promise that would span generations and we, we trust that it will happen even after we die and that we'll feel the benefits of that is wild. It's so wild to consider something like that. So Advent is essentially... A season devoted to that very thing. Sounds fun, doesn't it? This idea of like intentionally waiting. Intentionally feeling what we need and what we're waiting for. And this is how the Christian calendar sets it up. That the Christian calendar essentially takes your year, and I think I might talk about this at our New Year's Eve service. But the Christian calendar takes your year and makes it a sacrament. It says the whole year ahead of you, we're going to use it, we're going to grab a hold of time and use it for you to participate with Christ. So you're not just going through another year of life, you're going through another year of Christ. That's what the Christian year does. That we live purposefully into Jesus and according to Jesus. And Advent is a season that's set apart for that waiting time. We practice what it would feel like to await what's called the Tempus Adventus Christus. The time for the Christ to come. And we await His coming again in glory. And so we live between these two Advents. Advent means the coming. So the first Advent we have is the coming of Jesus and His birth. And the second Advent we have is Christ's second coming. And we live in between these two advents. It's hard to make sense what, it's, what we should hope for in between these two advents. But what advent helps us do in this season is sit in the dark, 
being honest about all that is wrong in us and in the world, while knowing that God has followed through with his promises to send a solution. So we know we have the Christ because we have the birth. But he also has not finished it, the work of salvation yet. So we're waiting for Christ to come again. Though he has defeated sin, evil, and death through his cross and resurrection, he has yet to destroy sin, evil, and death forever. And we live in the in-between. But that's actually very helpful to understand how we're meant to engage with Christ and engage with the Gospel, knowing that the work of salvation has has come and has begun and has done a great deal of incredible accomplishments, but there's still some yet to come. And we're waiting for that. St. Peter, in his epistle here, is writing to comfort followers of Jesus who are confused and discouraged by having to wait so long for Christ's second coming. And they think they had it bad. We're waiting a heck of a lot longer, aren't we? So what we want to do is we want to take St. Peter's words here, and we want to pull them into our presence, into our present to go, okay, how does this help us make sense of our world and what we're living in? So he begins in verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. When you read the New Testament, the way the early church thinks about Jesus' second coming is imminently. Right? So imagine they've just seen Christ's life. They've just seen his ministry. They just witnessed his crucifixion or heard of it. They've now witnessed his resurrection. The early church had 500 people that saw the resurrected Jesus. Paul talks about that when he writes to the Corinthians. Okay, So all these people see that Jesus is not only miraculous in healing and, and revelatory in his teaching, but he's sacrificial in his death to solve the problem of sin. And they see him resurrected from the grave. And then they see him ascend into heaven. And he says, I'll be back, don't worry. I'm going to come back and finish this work. So the early church has this strong sense of any, any day now Jesus is coming. And now as the years go on in the New Testament, people start to get a little bit uncomfortable with that fact. They're like, dude, he didn't come back. Or did we miss it? Or what should we do in the meantime? Some people are making fun of them because Jesus hasn't come back yet. And so it's this confusing component that thankfully we have the original 12 apostles or some of them around still to address this stuff to the early church. And so Peter begins by saying, let's just give it some perspective and and keep in mind that the God of the Bible is outside and beyond time. For God, one of his days is like a thousand of your years. For eternity, the whole history of the universe, the earth and humanity in comparison to eternity is but a thought. Eternity has no beginning and no end. And here our little world caught in time is so small in comparison to that. And Peter's point is that God does not subscribe to our sense of time or to our timetable. 
And just in case that discourages us, he goes on, verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. It's not that God is just slow, or that God is distracted, or God is reluctant to come and finish the work that He started. God's pace is intentional, Peter's saying. His slowness is actually patience towards you and towards the world. That's what motivates God's waiting, is patience. Because the motivation for Him is that all should reach repentance. Notice that language that Peter uses. The desire of God is that all should reach the point of repentance. Why is repentance something that needs to be reached? As though it's like a journey you have to get to. I think it's because self-awareness must be reached. Like similar to hitting rock bottom where you see things clearly. God is doing something similar to go. He's using all of your circumstances and situations to get you to a point where you can see the truth. You are broken. That evil has broken you. But that you're also a perpetrator of evil. That all of us are contributing to what's wrong in the world. And we can't just pretend it's okay. That things are seriously broken painfully broken in this world. And so God is hanging back on finalizing the work of salvation because He's patiently working with individuals to try and help them come to a place where they would see that they need the salvation He's offering. What's the value in reaching this place? From that self-awareness, I think we can see Jesus right. We can see that my greatest needs match up to Jesus' greatest accomplishments. That what I'm longing for, Jesus is offering. But I couldn't hear Jesus or see Jesus because I didn't want to see myself. And Jesus is saying, this is the work I'm patiently doing in the lives of everybody. This is the work God is currently doing in you in your family, in your friends, in your neighborhood, in the nations. This is what God is actively doing in the world. He didn't just leave and yeet. He's actively engaged with the world. For those of you that want to know what yeet means, see me after service. For those of you who are young enough to know what yeet means and think I'm old for saying it, please forgive me. If my teenagers were in here, they'd be like, Dad, don't. Don't do it. But this is why Jesus hasn't returned. Because He longs for the salvation of sinners like you and me. He longs to heal the brokenhearted and the weary bodied. But in case we fall victim to the temptation to believe He may not return at all, Peter goes on to say in verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth 
and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Peter is saying Jesus is going to come again quickly, like a thief when you least expect it. When the Bible talks about the creation of the cosmos, it's of God creating everything out of nothing, just like the sciences, I think, are now proving. It has to come from something. It's, it's interesting in my lifetime to see evolutionary scientists go on this process of going, all things come from this bang, which I don't actually disagree with. And then, but to, as you increase on the thought experiment and on the science and the facts behind it, you start to realize a bang can't come from nothing. Everything can't spring out of nothing. There has to be a source. And so what you hear now from the scientific community is about this idea of where is this other source coming from? Is it alien? Is it ex like where does this come from? And, but when we see the scriptures talk about the creation of the world, it's almost like God unrolls a scroll is some of the language it uses. The universe is like a scroll that he unrolls and fashions. Now what we see in the New Testament language, when Jesus is teaching and the apostles are teaching, it's almost like God rolls up the scroll. It's the opposite of the creation. It's a bringing an end to it. That where God created it, now God is uncreating it. And we'll see why in a minute. So all things according to this and according to Jesus' teaching will be destroyed in an instant just as they were created with a bang. But, Peter says, the works that are done on it, on the earth, will be exposed. So despite the whole universe being impermanent, Jesus teaches that what we do and who we are is not impermanent. So think about that for a minute. The universe itself is impermanent, according to the Creator. But those His image bearers that He has created, their lives matter so much that they'll have eternal reverberations. That what you did in this life matters. And it's saying on that day, it's like the, the decreation or the uncreation of the world, the destruction of the world. What will be left is the works of humanity. So each person's story and life that they've lived will be almost unveiled or exposed is the word that Peter uses. The hearts of humanity are going to remain after God's um, decreation of the universe. Stick with me. That was big. Verse 11, Peter goes on, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? So the way, the way of Jesus works is he's saying, if all of this world and all of these possessions and all of the creation and everything that we can see is going to be dissolved, but you matter on an eternal level, what sort of people or person ought you to be? If the whole universe goes away, but you don't, what, how should you live this life in the present? And then he goes on to say, are our lives holy? Meaning good. 
Are they of benefit to the world and to others? Are you living according to the pattern of godliness as is revealed in Jesus? This is what Peter's asking. He's going, what's the quality of your life? And then verse 12, he says, let's put them together so we see these verses together. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt away as they burn. What? If we're waiting, and he says hastening, are we living as though the day of God is approaching, is what he's asking. Do we have this sense of its coming, of its advent being near? Or are we living for temporary things that are going to be subject to dissolving? That's what he's asking. What have you given your life to? Is it something that's about to dissolve with the coming of God? Or is it something that is going to be of goodness and will endure for eternity? What really matters to you when you know the heavens are going to be set on fire and dissolve and the heavenly bodies will melt, how does that change what our priorities are in the present? Is what Peter's asking. When we hear language like this from religion, we think this is like, We've been trained that this is fear-mongering, it's manipulative, um, it's heavy-handed. But is this not the exact same message of our times? The idea that the earth is going to be destroyed, all things are going to be burned up, everything we have is going to be dissolved, and this life is on the brink of total and utter destruction. Is this not the primary thing that's Listed every single day in the news. Isn't it? So here's what I want you to see. Is a synergy between the message of the scriptures and the message of the way of Jesus about the end of all things and what our world is currently feeling is this groaning of like everything is broken and things are so wrong it's a self-destruction. What's going to stop and save that's the message. And what I hear a lot is this sense of impending doom. Our coroner of the province this week resigned. Did you catch that? The head coroner of BC resigned. And my sense was listening to her talk, she resigned out of and futility. So number one cause of death in BC right now is cancer, and number two is opioid crisis. And the average age or median age of those who die in the opioid crisis is in their 40s. And so what we heard from the coroner was just this sense of like, I don't know how to fix this, and I don't know what's going to help, and I can't take it. I can't take this position anymore. Then what do we hear next? We hear housing crisis. We hear food crisis because groceries. We hear international instability crisis. We hear debt crisis. We hear Trump crisis. I mean, tyranny crisis. We hear all political crisis. We hear crisis, 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 crisis. And what 
if you're listening to kind of different age brackets, there is a sense um, in some who are older of like kind of YOLO, you only live once, we're on our way out. Um, still living life to the fullest. But then what we're hearing from younger people is like, why live it all? It's just like, if, if the deck is fully stacked against me, and my future is futile, why the heck would I do anything? And where's the motivation, the drive, the hope that fuels doing those things? The year ahead, the next couple of years, the next few years, there's going to be a lot of pain, I think. A lot of hardship for our society. And, and then when you put... So the way our system works is to go, we're in a crisis, the world's going to end, and so we've got to do something. But then when you look into the science and you do the work and you're going, man, you know, the main polluters are these big conglomerates or the main polluters are these countries that don't have the means to stop it. Or, and you're looking at all this stuff and you start to go, what's the point? And how, how do I fix any of this? And where do I put my hope in? And... I think the way of Jesus offers something uniquely better in these uniquely trying times. I think the way of Jesus gives eternal value to the individual. Hear what Peter's saying in this. Even if the universe is dissolved, your life in the here and now matters for a life that far exceeds this one. Think about what that says to the young. Who you are as a person, the birth of Christ speaks to your supreme value. God sees you born into a world on the edge of destruction and loves you, cherishes you so much that he'll enter into that world with you. That's the the miracle of Christmas. Is that God says, I'll live the life with you. I'll suffer under bad governments. I'll suffer in broken families. I'll suffer with bad religion. I'll suffer with friends who will betray you. I'll suffer, I'll suffer, I'll suffer because you are valuable. Because you are beloved to me. Isn't that a word for the world? That God is saying, and not only does it matter in and of itself now, but the life that you live, a purpose and a vision and of love and of care for your neighbor and for others, for all eternity, that will be known and celebrated by God the Creator. Think about that. God is saying, however long your life is, whether it's short or long in years, all of it matters to Him for eternity. And all that it, of you that's found in Jesus will be purified, resurrected, and restored. So I, the way of Jesus gives eternal value to the individual in a hard world on the edge of destruction. But it also gives eternal value to their life and deeds on earth. So not just your birth, but your life matters to Him. And then it keeps going to say that the way of Jesus gives you eternal hope for the future of the world. Because all of these things, as hard as they are and as terrible as they seem and unavoidable as they seem, are in the hands of Him 
who can be trusted. So we have two versions right now that are happening. Either Let's give three versions. One, we stick our head in the sand, we find the pleasure we can get, and we disbelieve any idea that the world's going to end. Everything's fine, let's just find pleasure in the here and now. The second option is to go, all the science is pointing to the end of the world, and we we have to feverishly do something, but even though we know it's not necessarily going to change everything or fix it. Because what's the news saying? Beyond the tipping point, beyond the tipping point, beyond the tipping point. So what, that's one way we can live. Or the third way, which I think is the way of Jesus, offers a different way, which is when all of our scientists are saying we're on the edge of destruction, we go, oh yeah, that's in... Jesus has been saying that from the beginning. Why would we disbelieve that? Why would we fight that? And so if Jesus has been saying that, then we put our trust in the one who has, who's saying he's in control of it, who's saying he's big enough to handle it, who's saying it still has meaning and purpose and it won't lead to the end. And he's saying that our lives in the present value. So shouldn't we do everything in our power to not participate in the evil that's destroying the world? Shouldn't we? Like we don't go, evil's one, we might as well join it. Do we? Of course not. But here's the thing. The the supreme hope that we're holding to is that Jesus is saying he's going to be the one in control of that dissolving. Isn't that wild? So then notice how this ends in verse 13. But according to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So the God who has claimed creation of the universe is the same God who's come in the flesh, who has died a sinner's death, and has risen from the grave. This we believe, yes? This same Christ is promising to return to put an end to evil, to rid the universe of its evil impact, to redeem His people. And it's a vision of God's eternal kingdom coming and being united to a newly made earth that is under righteousness, incapable of evil, harm, or sin. So Jesus is saying this world is so valuable to him that he will remake it free of sin. That the dissolving is not an end, but a beginning. That the destruction that humanity sees coming is not an end, it's a beginning to a renewal. And Jesus is saying the same resurrection that he promises our bodies, he is promising to the body of the earth itself. So it leads us to this final question, I think. Why should Jesus delay it all? If this is the end, if He's going to remake the world, if He's going to save humanity, if He's going to restore all things, why delay? And if we go back into what Peter's saying, it's this, is that God desires that none should perish. Christ's kingdom does not value victory over evil over love. 
He does not wish that any should perish. This does not mean that none will perish, for some have chosen the way of evil and reject His grace and salvation. But God does not use the need to destroy evil as justification for not giving every opportunity for every person to turn from wickedness and be saved. You know, why not hit one more hot button issue this morning? As I watch what's going on in Israel and Gaza, and I grieve for what's taking place there, I grieve for the terrorism that was committed against Israel, I grieve for the hostages, I grieve for all of it. But then you can watch this point where it's like where the cause of good says we will also do evil because we must have victory. I grieve that. The loss of innocent life that we see in war within the nations, this is what sets Jesus' kingdom apart from every other earthly kingdom, is that Jesus never compromises for the sake of his victories. Ever. That Jesus is going to go to every step and every detail of every individual person to go, I'm going to be with you through your life story and I'm going to seek to draw you in that you would reach the point of repentance where you would go, I can't fix this. I can't do this on my own. I've done wrong. I've hurt those I love. I've hurt the world. I've hurt my Creator. And I, I see salvation in Jesus. This is what He is doing with every single individual. And not compromising on any one person. And so he delays on the glory of his vision and the salvation of the universe where heaven comes to earth. He delays because of those individual people. That's what we believe. So, living between these two advents, we know that Christ has come to us to comfort us in the midst of our suffering, to bring us salvation in the here and now, while we await the final salvation of all things. But what it does to the in-between is makes it clear if God is on a mission now for every soul, then this must be our purpose for the here and now as well as His church. It has to be. It has to be for every soul that they might come and find salvation as we have. Amen? Amen. This text is the spirit of Advent. Honest about the dark, but the ever-increasing light of the promise is getting brighter and brighter and brighter. And with it, we pray, comes true repentance and true faith in Jesus. Amen. Let's turn our hearts to the table. Hear the invitation. When the Lord comes, He will bring to 